Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 44, the book of Matthew, chapter 12 continued. While every chapter of the book of Matthew is packed with important information for the believer, chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, this is one of the meatiest of them all. Now this chapter also helps us to recognize something that I um, highlight in the very first lesson on the Gospel of Matthew, in that of all the Gospels, his, Matthew's, is the most Jewish. Clearly whoever this Matthew was. He was a Jewish believer in Yeshua that was well educated, he was knowledgeable in both Jewish law and in the Biblical Torah. Therefore, Matthew will by instinct dwell more on things like the ongoing relevance of the law of Moses in a believer's life, and he maintains an assumption that the reader is aware of the many nuances of Shabbat observance, and is familiar with both temple and synagogue operation and liturgy. Therefore, we're going to continue to spend considerable time unpacking the words of chapter 12 and revealing them in the context of first century Jewish society. Well, I want to begin by reading just a rereading, just a small portion of Matthew. So if you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to start reading at verse 6, and we'll finish up at verse 15. 6 through 15. Matthew chapter 12. I tell you, there is in this place something greater than the temple. Now, if you knew what I want compassion rather than animal sacrifice meant, you would not condemn the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of Shabbat. Now going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man there had a shriveled hand, and looking for a reason to accuse him of something, they asked him, Is healing permitted on Shabbat? But he answered, If you have a sheep that falls in a pit on Shabbat, which of you won't take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore what is permitted on Shabbat is to do good. And then to the man he said, Hold out your hand, and as he held it out, it became restored as sound as the other one. But the parashim, the Pharisees, went out and began plotting how they might do away with Yeshua. Aware of this, he left that area. The backdrop of these verses is that Yeshua is being confronted by some Pharisees who object to Yeshua's disciples picking heads of grain in a field and eating them. And they accuse His disciples of breaking Sabbath day laws at the direction of their Master. Now, to sum up what we covered last week, the Pharisees' complaint is not that there is something wrong with the disciples picking heads of grain from a field that they don't own, 
and then eating them. On the other six other days of the week, this would not have been prohibited. But on the seventh day Shabbat, the Pharisees considered what the disciples were doing as melakah, work, and this was forbidden. Now the Pharisees didn't seem to directly confront the disciples, but rather their master, Yeshua. This would have been rather standard for that era because it was understood that whatever practices and, and doctrines a flock of disciples held, it was because of their master. Yeshua responded by telling the complainants to remember what David did on a particular Sabbath many centuries earlier when he and his men arrived at Nob, where the tabernacle was operating, and they asked for food. Now the priest said there was none, but he offered David and his men some of the weak old showbread that had just been removed from the sanctuary. They ate it. However, according to one of the laws of Moses, David was not permitted to do such a thing, because the showbread was deemed by God as holy food. Thus, it could only be eaten by the priests. Clearly, Christ saw no more wrong in it than allowing him, uh, than him rather, rather allowing his disciples to pluck heads of grain and eat it on the Sabbath. Now, I pointed out that while the Sabbath controversy with, with Jesus and his disciples entirely revolved around the matter of Sabbath, the incident with David at Nob did not. This is because in David's situation it wouldn't matter what day of the week it was. The showbread was never to be eaten by laymen. Thus the common ground between these two incidents was the issues of food and of showing mercy on the Sabbath. The priest at Nob showed mercy. The Pharisees did not. Therefore Christ is demonstrating that the spirit of the law, which is defined by its underlying foundational principle that we are to love God with all of our hearts, minds, and strength, that we are to love our fellow man as we love ourselves, is always to be the guiding light. It's always to be the guiding light in determining how best to obey and apply the Law of Moses. And the spirit of the law reflects God's greatest quality towards humanity mercy. So in verse 7, Yeshua publicly chastises the Pharisees who considered themselves great and wise authorities on the Holy Scriptures, when He says, If you knew what I want compassion rather than animal sacrifice meant, you wouldn't condemn the innocent. Yeshua is quoting Hosea 6.6. 6. He is saying to the Pharisees, you read, you teach, but you don't know. 
Are you picking up on the fact that Yeshua is a confronter who does not mince words? Interestingly, he likes to pick fights, especially on Sabbath, in order to make his points. I mean, can you imagine a layman, which is what Jesus is in the eyes of those Pharisees, walking up to the stage of a pastor's convention, taking the mic, and admonishing his audience by saying, you read, you teach, but you don't know. How do you think that'd go over? This is of the greatest offense to these synagogue leaders who believe they are the repositories of biblical knowledge and they're not to be challenged except by one of their own. So what did Yeshua expect the Pharisees to understand about the meaning of this Hosea quote that they apparently did not? In Hebrew, the word that is variously translated as compassion or mercy is chesed. Both English Translations of compassion and mercy are correct. Both could apply to what Jesus has just taught that ought to be the reaction of the Pharisees to people who are hungry on the Sabbath. That is, compassion or mercy is to be shown to them by feeding those who are hungry no matter what day of the week it is. Now, sadly, much of institutional Christianity has declared that Yeshua is essentially saying that animal sacrifices are hereby abolished, along with the entirety of the Law of Moses. This is an issue of taking a biblical quote out of context, but also of not knowing the Holy Scriptures and their meaning from a God's eye view, just as the Pharisees did not. God's message through His prophet Hosea and through Yeshua is that the only reason animal sacrifices even exist in the first place is because humans do wrong. If humans always did right, and chief among doing right is displaying mercy and compassion, then animal sacrifices wouldn't even be needed to atone for wrongdoing, to atone for sinning. I mean, the principle is so simple, yet profound, that neither institutional Judaism nor Christianity in general seems to comprehend it. It also means that if humans obeyed God and always did right by displaying mercy and compassion, the ultimate sacrifice, Christ, wouldn't have had to suffer so severely and go to the cruel cross. Now see, what's so interesting about Yeshua's response are the words, you would not condemn the innocent. See, Yeshua is directly saying that although the Pharisees see the disciples as guilty for picking grain, God and Yeshua judges them as innocent. Now although the commandment to observe the Sabbath law is worthy, there is a weightier law, a greater law, for God worshipers to show 
mercy and compassion to our fellow man. I want to be very clear here. God is not some spiritual fascist dictator who says that special circumstance doesn't matter. Obey my laws to the letter no matter what or suffer the consequences. That's not God. Most of the laws of Moses that we are obligated to obey will have exceptions to the rule that happen occasionally. This is why it is so irreplaceable for humans to trust Christ and thus to gain the indwelling of the Holy Spirit such that we have a helping and guiding source who can direct us to obey the law from a God perspective. For instance, if every Shabbat Christ's disciples decided they need to go out and pick grain to eat, now this would become sin because mercy and compassion no longer apply. They are simply trying to find a loophole in the law to do something they want to do. Common sense says their motive in the action of picking grain every Shabbat would be wrong. If they know ahead of time they're going to be traveling on every Shabbat and naturally needing food, they could prepare in advance and thus obey the law of Sabbath as well as to complete their mission. Now, clearly Christ decided to lead these disciples of His somewhere on this particular Sabbath and they appropriately obeyed Him. But this situation was outside the norm. Just as it, was, as it was outside the norm for David to journey to Nob and need food on the Sabbath and for him to eat the tabernacle showbread, the only food available, that he of course knew was, according to the law, off limits to him. Perhaps since we're not told for what purpose Yeshua had the disciples traveling on Shabbat, at least one reason was precisely for Christ to have an opportunity to teach about the true intention of the Sabbath law and then how to properly observe it in all of its fullest divine meaning. Now the next verse has led to much false church doctrine, as did the previous one. Yeshua says this, He says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the most widely accepted interpretation and application of this verse goes something like this. Since Jesus is the new Lord of the Sabbath, He can remake it to mean anything He wants to. And He has just essentially said, all the old rules no longer apply. Well, I want to examine this closely. When Yeshua yet again refers to Himself by the favored title of the Son of Man, He is saying He is divine. As I've shown you, this can only be referring to Daniel 7's Son of Man. Therefore, Yeshua is claiming He has God-given authority. Now, Interestingly, we find these same words in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 2.28, but there are also some additional words in Mark that precede it. In Mark 2.27 we read, 
Then he said to them, Shabbat was made for mankind, not mankind for Shabbat. Now these words are sometimes used within Christianity to validate a doctrine that Yeshua can completely redefine Shabbat, even do away with it. Of the various interpretations of Christ's words that we we will find within commentaries and among denominations, I'd like to offer this thought instead. When we go back to the creation story in Genesis, we see that God created Adam, humankind, on what day? The sixth day. The sixth day. The following day, the seventh day, God ceased his creative activities and he ordained that day as the Sabbath. Now, please listen carefully. The Sabbath had in the past, has in the present, and never will in the future possess meaning. It will never possess meaning unless mankind exists to observe it and obey it. We have to exist, or Sabbath means nothing. Sabbath was not given to animals as an instinct written in their DNA. Sabbath was not given as an irresistible instinct within humans. Sabbath is a divine instruction. It's a law that comes with a moral choice. Do it or don't do it. Doing it as obedience comes with a blessing. Not doing it is disobedience. It comes with a consequence. See, it's true that humans are instructed to give their work animals a rest on Shabbat. But that's something that humans are responsible to do, and something that humans must direct. Listen to Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 14. Observe the day of Shabbat to set it apart as holy as Adonai your God has ordered you to do. You have six days to labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai your God. On it, you are not to do any kind of work, not you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, not your ox, your donkey, or any other of your livestock, not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property, so that your male and female servants can rest just as you do. See, we're told by God to impose a day of rest upon work animals. In the same way humans must impose days of work upon those animals as needed. Even so, the rest is give that that uh, the rest that's given, excuse me, the rest that is given to work animals was ordained because if work animals are working, necessarily a human has to be working as well. I mean, work animals don't just do their work all by themselves. 
So Shabbat revolves around mankind. Therefore, what Yeshua says in verse 8 is more proverb than instruction. He's making a point. He's making an instructional reminder about the reason for the existence of Shabbat, who it's for, why it exists, and that it's all about humanity. See, this is such an important point that I, I, I want to take this line of reasoning just a little bit further. If mankind did not exist, and only the universe and God existed, there's no point to having a Sabbath. Here's another way to think about it. Why would God create a nearly infinite universe if He also did not create sentient beings to observe it? I mean, as amazing as the universe is, without intelligent life, it's just there, existing, but for what possible purpose? Without humans to observe it, and wonder and awe at it, and most importantly, give God the glory for making it, then it is a useless mass of objects, cosmic clouds, energy, and gases. Applying this to Shabbat, then it's self-evident, and it's a profound truism that, as Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for the sake of man not man-made for the sake of Sabbath. See, from a merely logical perspective, if man was made for the Sabbath, then Sabbath would necessarily have to have been created first. And then afterward, man made to serve it. So this is not such a mysterious or difficult statement of Yeshua to understand at all. Now, as for the direct connection of this line of thought to Yeshua's confrontation with the Pharisees, He's telling them that because they read, they teach, but they don't know, they have reversed the entire meaning of Shabbat. Now, because of this series of burdensome, non-biblical, man-made rules and traditions about Sabbath, which the Pharisees have established or modified and then laid it upon the backs of the Jewish people, they have made humans as though they were slaves to the Sabbath. They have declared that God only made humans in order to serve the Sabbath. That's not only, not only illogical, it's a perversion of the mercy of God and of the divine purpose for a designated weekly day of rest and ceasing for the benefit of mankind. So it becomes, when we read Yeshua's word from this perspective and read it in Mark, it's clearer. Mark 2.27-28, Then he said to them, Shabbat was made for mankind, not mankind for Shabbat, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of Shabbat. See, the understanding is that because of the proverbial truth 
that the Shabbat indeed was made for humans, and not that humans were created in order to serve the Shabbat, then the divine Yeshua is the Lord of Shabbat because He represents the rest it provides for humanity. Yeshua is the very embodiment of Sabbath rest. Well, now verse 9 ends the grain field confrontation with the Pharisees. Jesus and the disciples leave the field, they go into a synagogue. Actually, it says that Yeshua went into their synagogue. So the synagogue Yeshua went into was one that some or all of these disciples of the grain field incident attended, or perhaps Matthew speaking, speaking about the synagogue that these particular Pharisees attended. It's hard to tell. When Jesus arrived, there was a man inside the synagogue who had a shriveled hand. And there were, of course, some Pharisees as well that wanted to test Him. Now, was this the same group of Pharisees that He'd been disputing with? Hard to tell. Right? But I think that it was, since they kept up the same line of questioning about what's permissible on the Sabbath. So they turn and they ask Christ if it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Now, this is in reference, of course, to the man with the shriveled hand. Now remember the context. As of this point in His earthly ministry, Jesus is perceived by the Jewish public as a holy man, a sodic, whose primary ability is to heal the sick and the lame. He has done little to dispel that notion, even though His regular Son of Man references to Himself are the strongest of implications that He is divine, at least for those who have the ears to hear. Now we must notice that like with David wanting food on the Sabbath, this man with the withered hand, he didn't have a life-threatening situation that required immediate attention. So this right away tells us that Christ is again going to foment a confrontation with the Pharisees in order to make an instructional point. But the Pharisees know what they're doing. The Pharisees don't ne didn't necessarily think healing on Shabbat was unlawful. The issue for them was the seriousness of the condition of the patient. In Mishnah Roma 8.6 we read, a case of risk of loss of life supersedes the Sabbath law. See, the goal of the Pharisees was to entrap Christ. Now, as was typical of Yeshua, He answered their question with a question of His own and then proceeds to provide the answer to His question. So, in response, He asked the Pharisees, well, if a sheep, a farm animal, were to fall into a pit on a Shabbat, would the sheep's owner work to take the sheep out? Now, this to us sounds like a rhetorical question. 
Because the common sense answer would seem to be, well, yes, of course. However, as with the issue of healing on a Sabbath, whether to remove a farm animal that had fallen into a pit on Sabbath, this was not of consensus opinion among the Jews. The essence, and the author of the book of Jubilees would have said, one should do neither. You shouldn't heal and you shouldn't pull the animal out of the pit. One should not heal no matter how dire the situation, and one should not remove a farm animal from a pit even if the animal was going to suffer or die. I mean, if we can apply the thoughts of the Mishnah to Yeshua's day, then very likely the most accepted answer among the Pharisees as to whether Yeshua was permitted to use his holy man gifts to heal this man with the withered hand was no. And that's because the man's life was not in danger. And the same logic would also have applied to the farm animal in the pit. If the animal was gravely injured, uh, rather was not gravely injured, it probably should have been left there. So while we might say that it's only logical and merciful to take that animal out of the pit, the people Yeshua was dealing with and debating with would not have agreed with that. Yeshua is intentionally provoking these Pharisees and openly challenging their doctrines. Now there's one other aspect regarding Yeshua's attitude, regarding the value of farm animals. He was from the Galilee. The Galilee was the breadbasket of the Holy Land, and the bulk of the people living there were poor farmers and herders. These people lived a simpler life than their Jewish brothers in Judea. They had less interest in long-winded theological debates and the tiny nuances of doctrines and traditions. So of course a Galilean would take a farm animal out of a pit on Sabbath, both for the sake of mercy on the animal and because it was valuable. They couldn't afford to lose it. So reasons Christ. If you agree that a sheep should be rescued from a pit on the Sabbath, something he obviously believes ought to be agreed to, regardless of its condition, regardless of the danger it may or may not be in, then because human life has such greater value than a farm animal, then healing a human ought to occur on Shabbat. What is permitted on the Sabbath is to do good, says Jesus. Now here's a note to the wise. To do good does not mean to do whatever your heart or emotions tell you to do. To do good always means to do God's will. To do what's righteous. The statement to do good is similar in nature to the one he pronounced earlier, as recorded in Mark, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That is, it's a proverb. A proverb is a statement of general truth. It's not a strict rule. 
It's not a law. It's something, not something that has no exceptions. He also is once again using the standard rabbinical debate and scriptural interpretation method of Call Vomer, light versus heavy. When two or more laws seem to collide in a particular situation, how do you choose what to do? So it comes down to what the weightier matter of the law dictates. Once again, Jesus puts compassion and mercy in the form of healing or rescuing a trapped animal as weightier. It is of a higher righteousness than even following the letter of Shabbat law that one should do no labor, or more in tune with what the real issue Yeshua was contending with, Jewish law and tradition about the matter. So Yeshua tells the man, hold out your disabled hand. He does, and instantly he's healed. What's the reaction of the Pharisees to Jesus healing this man on Shabbat? <laughs> Verse 14 says, oh, well, we're going to have to do away with him. Why? Why? Because he made some claim about himself that they couldn't tolerate? I mean, did they disagree with him over Jewish tradition regarding Sabbath observance? Or was it because he showed them up? They couldn't have some Galilean riffraff, even if he was a demonstrated miracle healer, threaten their authority. Either way, the matter of Jesus being the Divine Messiah never enters the discussion. Because at this point, Christ has not said He is, and no one seems to suspect He is. Simply put, this was a personal matter. He publicly, publicly offended the wrong people, and He'd done it more than once. Christ sensed the danger. so. He immediately left the area. Let's read a little bit more. Matthew 12. We're going to read verses 15 through 29. Matthew 12, verses 15 through 29. Aware of this, he left the area. Many people followed him, and he healed them all. But he warned them not to make him known. See, this was to fulfill what had been spoken through Yeshiao, Isaiah, the prophet. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen. My beloved, with whom I am well pleased, I will put my spirit on him, and he will announce justice to the Gentiles. He will not fight or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not snap off a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick until he has brought justice through to victory. In him, the Gentiles will put their hope. Then some people brought him a man controlled by demons who was blind and mute, and Yeshua healed him so that he could both speak and see. The crowds were astounded and asked, This couldn't be the son of David, could it? But when the Parashim, Pharisees, heard of it, they said, Oh, it's only Baal the ruler of the demons, that this man drives out demons. However, knowing what they were thinking, 
Yeshua said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not survive. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. So how can his kingdom survive? Besides, if I drive out demons by Baal-zebul, by whom do you people drive them out? So they'll be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, well, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can someone break into a strong man's house and make off with his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? After that, he can ransack his house. Now, the first of the several verses that we have just read have to do with Yeshua's status as a servant. As a servant. We are told that Yeshua left the area of the Sabbath controversy at the grain field, but he was followed by large crowds. The people who formed the crowds were Jews looking for this Jewish Sadek to heal them. And that he did, all of them. Now, those words are really a summary of Jesus' ministry to this point. Now, I've mentioned it before, but in order that we don't lose the overall flow of what's happening thus far in Matthew, the attraction to Jesus has been two things. First and foremost, his miraculous ability to heal physical infirmities and exercise de de uh, demonic possessions. Secondly, the people followed him to seek his wisdom. The second matter alone put Jesus into direct competition with the Pharisees and the scribes. So he healed all who came to him, but he also warned them not to make him known. Now, I don't think the meaning of this is all that difficult. It is that he already knew the Pharisees were plotting his demise. That's why he abruptly left the area. Of course, he didn't want to be found. He didn't want his location and his itinerary known. So he told people not to say anything about him. Verse 17 is a statement by Matthew, the Gospel writer, in order to explain all that Christ had been doing and saying. He then goes on to quote from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Now, this is a loose quote he, he does, it's not an exact one. From Isaiah 42 through Isaiah 53, we have what's called the Suffering Servant chapters. Now, if we had the time, it would prosper us to study those 12 chapters. However, as regards the Suffering Servant matter, it must be noted that in the book of Isaiah, at first, the Suffering Servant is definitely the sovereign nation of Israel. At other times, it represents the people of Israel. At still other times, it can only be referring to an individual, a single person. And that person, that one particular suffering servant, is the Messiah. Now, as David Stern rightly points out, this progression 
of the meaning of the suffering servant in Isaiah reveals the close association of Messiah Yeshua not only to the land and the nation of Israel, but also to the Jewish people. I, I would take it one step further and say that it shows that Christ is the epitome. He is the ideal of a perfect Israel. He represents all that Israel was meant to be, but had never become, because they were and are, just like the rest of humanity, too fleshly, disobedient, corrupt, to attain the lofty goals set out for them through the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and by the covenant of Moses. I want to discuss these few verses from Isaiah that Matthew quotes. The quote opens up with some very important words. Here is my servant. Now when we look at the Hebrew word translated to servant to servant in English, it is eved or ebed. It means the same thing, you just pronounce it a little differently. It means slave, her servant. And in the Greek of the New Testament, pious, it means the same thing. It, it, it's not a negative term as we think of, of slave or servant in the modern West. Rather, it simply means a person who serves. Most often, most often it's, it's voluntary servitude. So in the case of Yeshua as the Father's servant, it is that Yeshua voluntarily serves the Father's will according to the Father's purposes and plans, not His own. Yeshua sits in a divine hierarchy below the Father. The terms slave and servant simply cannot be taken in any other light. I have previously asked you to see Jesus in terms of an agent, an earthly representative of the Father. Christ carries the authority of the Father, but He is not fully equal in rank and He carries only the range of authority, although it's very wide, that He is given. No one gives the Father His authority. No one sets boundaries or limits on the Father. Authority is inherent in Him as the Creator and Author of all things. So in this passage from Isaiah, it is God the Father who is characterizing Yeshua as His servant whom He's chosen. And it is also that all the healing activities Yeshua has been doing are viewed by Matthew as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. And when we look back to Matthew chapter 3, we find that when John immerses Yeshua, the heavens open and God thunders, This is my Son whom I loved. I am well pleased with Him. So while these words are not identical with Isaiah 42, the sentiment's the same. 
However, in Matthew 12, we get the revelation that the suffering servant is to be identified as God's own Son. There is no doubt that to Matthew, Isaiah 42 verse 1, which was made some 700 years before the birth of Christ, is at last fulfilled in that announcement of Matthew 3.17. Well, next we read that I, God, will put my Spirit on Him. Back to Matthew 3. We read, At that moment heaven was opened, He, meaning John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God coming down upon Him, upon Jesus, like a dove. More direct fulfillment of Isaiah, even down to the detail of the Spirit on Him as opposed to in Him. We could spend an entire lesson talking about the nuances of the Holy Spirit being upon someone as opposed to being in someone. However, in this case, since Yeshua is seen as the repository of the Holy Spirit on earth during His ministry, perhaps it is less a matter of precisely where the Holy Spirit resides, in other words, upon Christ like a garment, or in Him as if He were a container, and rather it's about how and when it came to Him in the first place. It could also be that an exact literal fulfillment of Isaiah, I will put my Spirit on Him, was manifested with the image of that dove descending down upon Yeshua, this for the sake of God's worshipers, in order that they and we might positively identify God's Son as our Messiah, and that is Yeshua of Nazareth. Well, after God putting His Spirit upon Yeshua, the next words in Isaiah are that He, that meaning the suffering servant, will announce justice to the Gentiles. Now, I want to begin with the final word of this phrase, Gentiles. In Hebrew, the word is goyim. Indeed, it can be properly translated as either Gentiles or nations. Now, if one understands the biblical meaning of the term nations, it makes translation of goyim more clear about how it should be used in, in its various senses. After the advent of Abraham and his pledge of allegiance to Yahweh, the world became divided into two groups, Hebrews and non-Hebrews. Non-Hebrews are called Gentiles. However, once this division of humanity occurred, then the reality became that all nations on earth consisted solely of Gentiles, except for Israel, which did not yet exist until the advent of Jacob. Thus in Bible speak, a nation is automatically a Gentile nation, unless that nation is specifically Israel. 
So the Hebrew word goyim now means a sovereign nation of Gentiles or a group of Gentiles in general. Now to me, the context of the Isaiah quote demands that the word is nations. That is, the suffering servant will announce justice to the nations. Again, remembering, by this time, nations means a nation of Gentiles. So what is this justice he's going to announce? The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. Now, the word has a very deep meaning that we do not have the time to thoroughly explore today. I go into great depth on the subject in a number of lessons in the book of Exodus. So you can go to TorahClass.com website if you want to and enter the word Mishpat, M-I-S-H-P-A-T, in the search box and do some study on your own. But what we need to understand for today is that there is mankind's type of Mishpat, mankind's type of justice, and there's God's type of Mishpat. There's God's type of justice, and they're not the same, although they should be, and the Millennial Kingdom, they will be. Mishpat runs closer to what we might call a judicial ruling, a verdict. And the verdict is that all of mankind is guilty of, a sin, of sinning, of offending God, so faces the death penalty for it. However, God has pro provided for redemption. In other words, He's provided a means for not facing the death penalty. And here in Isaiah, 40, Isaiah 42, we find that justice in the form of redemption is not only offered to Israel, it's for all nations, all Gentile nations plus Israel. And the person who will announce that this type of justice has arrived is the suffering servant, God's Son, the Messiah, Yeshua. This person, Yeshua, is God's agent for redemption to all who will accept Him. Well, next we see that it is prophesied that this person will not fight or shout. This means that he's not coming to form an army. He didn't come to free Israel from some kind of national oppression, nor is he coming to gain a reputation for himself. Thus no one will hear him on the streets, that is, he will not be standing on a soapbox yelling, the end is near. He will do his work, mostly, quietly, gently, and with the common folks, only when he's confronted by the opposition leadership, the leadership that is leading his people astray. Pharisees, scribes, later on he'll deal with the temple priests. Then we see him holding his ground and instructing them in their wrong doctrine. This gentle and meek quality of Jesus is what is meant 
by. He will not snap off a broken reed. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. That is, he is coming to heal broken people. Even those whose faith is nearly gone, the smoldering wick. The suffering servant is not coming to deliver them to the grave in condemnation, but rather to revitalize them, to save them. But then a very important word follows that statement, until. That is, for the time being, he will not condemn the barely spiritually alive person, but in time, he will. When is that time? It is when he has brought justice, mishpat, through to victory. That is, it is God's justice to bring redemption to the guilty. And Jesus is God's agent to perform that task. And once he's done that, then the guilty, the broken reeds and the smoldering wicks, will indeed be sent to their graves, their spiritual graves, if they refuse to reach out to him. Now please hear me. Christ has already brought God's justice to the world. It's done. What is left for him to do is to snap off those broken reeds, to snuff out those smoldering wicks. This is going to happen. But it will happen with his second advent when he comes to punish, not to heal. Again, to end the quote from Isaiah, we read something about non-Hebrews, today we would say non-Jews, in Him the Gentiles will put their hope. Here we should take the term Gentiles, goyim, more as meaning Gentile people rather than Gentile nations, because it is individuals that put our hope in Christ. Now, since the next activity of Christ will be to return and to lead an army of believers in a real, literal, physical battle for planet Earth, then in the time between His ascending to heaven, back in the first century, to today, in the 21st century, the job of healing those broken reeds and smoldering wicks, folks, that's fallen to us. That's our job. He's commanded it of us. That's what we're here for. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into disciples, immersing them into the reality of the Father and of the Son and of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'll be with you always. Yes, even until the end of this age. See, it's up to us as his followers. Jewish and Gentile believers in Yeshua, worshipers of the God of Israel, to take this good news of God's justice, His redemption, to the inhabitants of the world. See, but this news must be told in truth, not in some pagan-inspired doctrines 
that have crept into our faith. Otherwise, we'll preach a false Messiah, not the true one. We'll continue with Matthew 12 next week.